Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world. Well, welcome back to 2023. Today, we've got a law and economics professor, an ultramarathon runner, an antitrust rapper, and a co-author of The Furman Report. And it's all one person, Dr. Philip Marsden, who joins us to talk about digital competition and new approaches to regulation. Did he perform an antitrust rap for us, Moya? Actually, he did. Is this all hipster? Are we human or are we dancer? The killers ask that and I answer. It's all based on some exploitation of basic human needs and traits. Everyone's so excited about regulating markets multi-sided. But what does it mean? What do we know? Do we know what to do? What harm do we show? But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, we've had a bit of a break between seasons, and as usual, there was a lot of competition law activity just before the holidays, and quite a bit so far this year as well. Mm, Well, let's have a bit of a quickfire round. Good idea. So, the Privacy Act Penalties Bill got its royal assent on the 12th of December, and now any serious breaches of privacy could trigger massively increased maximum penalties. Mm. Just like the new competition and consumer law penalties, that'll be the greater of $50 million, or three times any benefit that arose from the conduct, or if that can't be determined, and it often can't, then it'll be 30% of domestic turnover for the period of the breach. Mm, feels like we're going to spend a lot of time repeating that sequence of words then. Can we come up with a catchier name to use for those three complicated options? Uh, like the triangle of sadness, maybe? Yeah, or maybe three up front, or the hat trick, or the triple threat. Those are all great options. Also in December, Google managed to avoid the three up front when the federal court found that it hadn't misled customers about the way that it would use their personal information. I remember back last August, they found that Google had misled users about the way it used their location data and fined them $60 million. So what's different here? Well, both cases had to look carefully at the various screens that were presented to users. Mm-hmm. Both of them heard expert evidence from behavioural economists about what different kinds of users would understand from those screens. And then they had to decide whether those impressions reflected what was really going on with the personal information or whether they were misleading. Yeah, so in the location data case, the court found that some users would get the impression that turning off location history would stop the phone tracking their location which was actually wrong because you had to turn off another setting as well. That's right, you did. In the new case, the ACCC argued that Google hadn't properly explained that if you agreed to its new privacy settings, it would then combine the information it had on you with new information from other apps and websites that you might use. It also said that Google had carefully crafted the consent process to sort of nudge you into agreeing rather than making sure you understood what you were agreeing to. So a duck pattern, perhaps? That was the argument. Here the court said, though, that Google's consent process actually made it clear enough that Google was going to use your information in the way that it did. And even if the process was designed to get you to agree, that wasn't really a problem as long as it wasn't misleading. And a dark pattern is something that might not be misleading and might not be unconscionable. And actually the kind of thing we might get a new prohibition on unfair trading practices to deal with. Yeah, that's what the ACCC says in its digital platforms repo number five and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. We've all seen these carefully constructed choice screens where you know the yes is much bigger or brighter than the no. But the same thing can happen offline as well, like when it's really easy to sign up for a subscription to something, but almost impossible to cancel one. Oh God, I've got heaps of them. Yeah, and that's why the ACCC is recommending an unfair practices prohibition that would apply across the economy, digital and offline. And I can see that Treasury's now consulting on all of the recos in repo number five. That's right. It released a paper just before Christmas. Uh, it's playing a pretty straight bat so far. Mm-hmm. It does point out that there are risks and challenges with the new approach. And it asks whether the same benefits could be achieved using other tools, including the existing law. And it asks who should be responsible for things like designing the codes and designating the platforms and enforcing the whole thing. 
which the ACCC hasn't weighed in on. That's right. It'll be interesting to see if the ACCC feels it should step into the consultation process at this stage or wait until later on. And the government had another Christmas present for the ACCC, didn't it? Yeah, it introduced a temporary cap on the price of gas and it put the ACCC in charge of enforcing the cap. In January, the ACCC released its interim guidelines on how it would help industry comply with the new cap and not accidentally circumvent it, which would result in the triple threat of penalties. And our colleague partner Jeremy Jose has an article in the Financial Review setting out the reasons why a price cap could raise issues with investment and uncertainty, which is one reason why the ACCC didn't recommend it in its gas inquiry, which Jeremy actually worked on. That's right. And we'll link to that article in the show notes. As Jeremy says, the guidelines do try to make things a bit clearer, but they rely quite a lot on the ACCC's enforcement discretion in deciding when to intervene, which means there's still a fair bit of uncertainty there. And how else are we ringing in the competition new year? Well, the ACCC is also consulting on the NBN's revised variation to its special access undertaking. This had to be reconsidered, of course, when the new government decided to keep the broadband network in public ownership and focus on improving access rather than recouping all of its past investment in the network. And last time, the ACCC was concerned that the wholesale price structure meant that the cheaper, slower plans were going to end up costing retailers about the same as the expensive, faster ones over time, right? It was. uh, And the ACCC is still concerned that the most popular plans may be more expensive, but it's pleased that the complex CBC peak usage charge is being phased out. Entry-level speeds will improve uh, and faster plans will come down in price for people who need them. So that's a lot of consultations across the board. Have we got time for one more bit of news before the deep dive? Well, in very exciting podcast news, we finally received an email with a tip from a listener. An actual listener? Technically a listener. Uh, This is Jeremy Jose, who you'll remember from a couple of minutes ago, (laughs) and also from our electricity podcast last year. I think it still counts, though. That counts double. What does he say? Well, he's also been following developments in AI pretty closely. And you've probably heard about ChatGPT by now, which does for words what we've seen tools like DALI and Stable Diffusion do for images. You can ask ChatGPT a question or tell it to write about something in the style of whoever, and it'll do a pretty credible job. So can it write a podcast episode? It kind of can, though at the moment it's got a knowledge cutoff of 2021 and it can't really write jokes yet. So we're safe for now. But maybe not for long. There's an advanced version of ChatGPT that Microsoft is adding to some of its products. And there's already another large language model called Claude, which seems to have been trained to be funnier. Jeremy's just sent in a list of Claude's titles for the next 25 Fast and Furious movies. So he has listened to the podcast. At least once, yeah. So as you know, there are already nine of these movies, and Claude says the next one should be Fast 10, Ludicrous Speed, which is wrong. Of course, everyone knows that it should be Fast 10, Your Seatbelts. Of course. But then Claude gets into gear with the fast, the faster, and the furiousest pedal to the metal mayhem. Well, those are almost plausible. Yeah, and, and the last one, I'll need to take a breath for this, is the fast, the faster, the fastest, the furiouser, the furiousest, the whatever that comes after fastest and furiousest, the whatever comes after that, the next few things after that, and then some more on top for good measure, Colin. This title is now longer than the actual movie. Is that real? <laughs> if it's real, I think we're in trouble. It sounds a lot like self-awareness to me. <laughs> and I don't have access to Claude yet, but I can tell you that ChatGPT comes up with things more like the nitro-fueled nonsensicals and the insanely insane races, which takes a bit of a different path. Well, they sound like a pretty accurate description, but I guess that's not what the people want. No, no, it's not. But speaking of what the people want, you sat down recently with Dr. Philip Marston to talk about regulating digital platforms and so much more. Yeah, we had a great chat about how Europe, the UK and Australia and a few other places are looking to deal with new markets and technologies. And there were a few surprises along the way. Let's take a listen. 
It's a great pleasure to have with us today, Professor Philip Marsden. Pleasure to meet you. Now, Philip, first of all, you have made bold attempts to popularise competition law. And on the pod, we pride ourselves on Matt Rubenstein's cryptic crossword on competition law, which has been wildly popular amongst an audience of about three. We've had the rewrite of the words to Mambo number five in honour of the Digital Platforms Services Inquiry Report number five, or Repo number five, as he calls it. So we've had that, but you have actually taken this to remarkable heights by putting competition law to rap. Why and how? I think one of the main reasons has been that I was responding to this populist, progressive, neo-Brandesian hipster sort of movement that you've addressed in previous podcasts and thought that one of the missions of a competition agency itself anyway is to work for consumers. We can debate about what theory of harm we should be looking at and which form of consumer welfare. But sometimes the authorities themselves try to get their message out to the public. And even though my public, sadly, is a very narrow bunch within the competition knitting circle of lawyers, economists, and students, and I don't think I've got a cryptic crossword or a mambo number five up in my sleeves, but I think that was a way of saying, look, I have one particular message, one or two particular messages, let's do it in an amusing way. And also, some of the points we were making kind of resonated. When we did our Furman report here, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I seriously wanted it to be entitled, The Winner Takes It All rather than unlocking digital competition. Not just because I think ABBA is fantastic, but also because that was one of the main theories of reality, market structure that we were relying on was, and 80 pages of our report indeed said, the winner takes it all, and that's fine. That's what happens in these tippy markets with respect to platforms. And that would resonate with the public because of the ABBA song. So why a rap? The rap, I think, was mainly because it's just, it's a, it's a platform, you know, and it's fun. And my kids are older enough now to say to me, you shouldn't have chosen hip hop or rap, dad. You should have just done some sort of grandiose opera, which might be next. Perhaps DMA the musical. What I will say is that whether it's an opera or a musical or whatever, none of this is going to be over until the fat lady sings. We need legislation for a lot of these points. And I would rather not see competition theories of harm distorted through a stretching of competition law analysis. I would rather see governments fess up and say, this is what we're doing. For example, we're just going to designate certain gatekeepers as opposed to sort of tilting competition law itself with respect to day-to-day markets, construction cartels, things like that, that perhaps don't need the kind of ex-ante rules that maybe these tech platforms do. And also, frankly, I don't believe there's enough white middle class Oxford educated lawyers doing rap. So, Philip, it's fair to say that you are a fan of ex ante rules, I think, and you've been an advocate for them on the basis that the harm is already clear and that really governments should intervene before they become irrelevant. Is that a fair summation of your views? Yeah, I think that's a fair summation of views. I think I came to it with a slightly different journey in that I had been a prosecutor. I had worked on many, many competition cases. I'd worked in private practice. And I always sort of bemoaned the length of time that these cases take, especially when I was in my enforcement role. In that environment of litigation and delay I felt that that is not an appropriate environment to get ahead of some of the problems if those problems are clearly evidenced. And I'm very pleased that the CMA has done a lot of the evidence gathering following our Furman report. So I'm glad to see that the CMA has substantiated our views in that area and that there is a need for the ex-ante regulation. But then there's the problem. How do you make sure that you maintain the great benefits of innovation and new business models and diversifying of conduct and offerings, but at the same time cleanse the market a little bit of some of the more toxic practices that I think we probably all would agree are problematic. But some people would say, well, let's just let the market 
rid themselves of it themselves, or let's find some way of getting compensation to consumers or to businesses. And others might say, well, why don't we just try to stop those practices in the first place? And that's where we are. Well, the stakes are high, aren't they? I mean, the digital platforms are so ubiquitous, they're global. And if it's gotten wrong, or if there is harm, then there could be a great deal of harm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure there will be a range of spillovers, as there are usually when one jurisdiction takes a lead on remedies or something like that, with abuse of dominance or with situations relating to gatekeeper status. I think it's going to be incumbent on the companies to get very involved with the regulator to help explain the rationale for some of the conduct they're doing and to explain why it helps their bottom line. And they may argue helps others as well, whereas the enforcer is going to have to broaden their view a little bit to try to understand those benefits. As you know, in Australia, we've had these digital platform services inquiries and we got up to number five, which Kate Reader in our last episode called the halftime report, which I thought was very apt because it did mark a bit of a change of direction. It was like a halftime talk from Gina Cascott-Lieb, some recommendations around new measures in competition law around designation of platforms and service-specific codes that would apply. So, you know, Perhaps that is now coming more into alignment with what's been going on in the EU and in the UK. Yeah, I think it's incumbent on me to say that, and I believe this truly, that Australia is a world leading government in this area in looking at these matters. I am interested by the pace with which you've reached half time, where in that time, Europe, starting later than you, has actually got legislation on the books. It's not a criticism of the Australian model. I think what you might be doing is building up an evidence base and a policy set of recommendations so that eventually a sane government can say, yes, that looks good, and you would get a smooth landing to the proposals, perhaps. What's going to happen in various jurisdictions around the world is we're going to see how some of this ex-ante regulation beds down, whether it's a bargaining code or whether it's something to do with fair treatment on a platform or whether it's access to the platform. These kind of principles motivate most of the ex-ante regulation. But the European Commission's proposal, for example, and the legislation itself is based on these sort of amorphous gifts to lawyers and economists, you know, these principles of contestability and fairness. And I think I know what contestability means. It's the ability to access a market and to be able to compete and show your wares. Fairness, who knows what it means? But I think it's more to do with the, the fairness once you're on the platform and how you're treated. But they are very amorphous concepts about which people will disagree, you know, and yet it's already law in the EU and there's no guidance on how this is going to be interpreted. And so I wish there had been some more discussion or guidance, or I hope that the enforcement model that they eventually engage is something where we can get transparency from the authorities about what is a violation and what isn't. And equally, I think we'll probably get that in the first instance, actually, ironically, in the UK, because even though we're a bit behind the legislation, the UK has always said it's going to be a very bespoke platform by platform model. I know some people say, well, you can't have a code for Apple and a code for Google. Well, we are going to, but it's going to be related to their core platform services and the kind of conduct that's likely on that platform, the biggest kind of harms on those platforms, appreciating the platforms are different. And from that, I think there will be principles that will get us more to the Australian stage of saying, well, it's not really that company we're worried about itself. We're worried about that kind of business model. So in a sense, we're kind of going at it in a very narrow, bespoke way. I hope to identify problems and solutions. European Commission is going in a very, very broad way and gaining all the attention. And there are risks there. They might just end up having lots of violations, lots of prohibitions, but that all is appealed in court for 18 years. And then there's the Australian way, which is maybe a bit of both, which is saying once we've sure we've got it right and we've got the enforcement model right and all the consultations we've done are leading us in a particular direction, maybe then we can have legislation and a new decision making model. And I think that's probably wise in this area. But that said, you are also completing, we all are, I suppose, 
with private actions, class actions. There's 20, 30 tech platform class actions in the UK right now against all of the four players. And the results of those are going to dictate how the law develops as well. Whereas we're trying, you know, in government to be a bit more broader based and be able to signal to business beforehand what we don't think is appropriate rather than chase after them for years. Well, anything that's litigated takes time. It can be settled. So it may or may not run the full stretch and it may or may not provide the guidance that you're looking for, which I think is to your point about why you're in favour of codes. Yeah, well, I've had this huge problem for many, many years about the European Commission's lack of publication of its no grounds for action decisions or its commitment decisions themselves. You just don't get enough meat on those decisions. And I understand why, you know, clever lawyers are reacting for their clients and saying, you can't release this, you can't release that. But even the unredacted sections of those commitments or settlement documents are not, by definition, they're not guidance. So in Australia, we've got a proposed framework where the codes will be service-specific rather than platform-specific. But of course, the designated digital platforms will be individualised. So in a sense, it's arguably a more surgical approach to the challenge than what you're seeing in the UK. Do you see any benefits in that? I think there's benefits to both. So I would prefer a service based approach in a way, because that seems more objective. You're looking at the kind of conduct, a kind of activity in a certain market structure that causes problems. Ex ante, you want to get ahead of that. And then you can apply that to a range of different platforms. The other way of doing it is saying we need to move, in a sense, to a supervision and enforcement regime. We need to know who we're supervising and what we're supervising them about. I suppose it's an existential question if they're that different, but one of them will definitely be we want to build a compliance supervision model with a compliance team within the platform that's being regulated. Other jurisdictions might be saying, no, we'll just come to you when we feel the service has created a problem. But I think the UK is going to move more closely to what we've seen in financial services, where you have conduct regulators that are regularly supervising these platforms. So I'm personally feel that it's nice to test out the UK model first. And indeed, I think we'll probably learn most about what doesn't work because the UK will also probably release remedies faster than other regimes might. I'm not sure yet, and I don't know if anybody's sure yet, how the Australian model will work in terms of whether you want to go fully into compliance models and then supervision. It's interesting because the model setting up the digital markets unit here in the UK, I mean, obviously, a new unit takes resources. Is it better to set up a new unit? Is it needed, do you think, specifically, or can the existing regulators do that? It's a live question for Australia, really, because if these recommendations are adopted, then there'll have to be a decision about who is going to designate the platforms, who is going to write the codes, and who is going to enforce the codes, and whether that is the same regulator or different ones, or is there a new one? Yeah, well, we struggled with this in our 2019 Furman report. We had a sort of a draft outline chapter of who gets the powers. We left it out of the report because A, we couldn't agree on who should get them, and B, we thought from a presentation point of view that the headline would be for one half second. Furman report, in the swatty circles we sit in, says Ofcom should have the powers or CMA should have the powers. So there's an unreleased chapter of the Furman. Oh my goodness. This is is like a Beatles recording that never made it it to vinyl. It's there somewhere in the crackly crackly (laughs) screen recordings and documents. But it's one of those things where we decided not to because we wanted at that time, at least in 2019, relatively early in the populist progressive debates about antitrust, but still only three, four years ago, we wanted to land our message. And so we thought, why not a unit that's within a body to be determined? It happens to be the CMA, I think, in the fifth report. And at the end of the fourth report in Australia, I feel a sense of future-proofing, of sort of saying, well, we found this conduct and these problems here. Oh, and by the way, if Amazon ever starts X, 
then they'll be liable for this too. I think it'll be very interesting for regulatory experimentation, competition of competition policies. But if I was private counsel, I would be sitting back going, oh my gosh, how do I advise my clients about this? They've got a global offering. Should they stay out of Europe for a bit? Should they stay out of Australia? Should they go everywhere and just see where lightning strikes? What can we do to get in to talk to the ministers uh, to say, what do you mean by innovation? What are these concepts that you're talking about so that we know whether our model will be compliant? And then there'll be some different platforms will have different strategies, you know, aggressively, you know, we're just going to enter and do what we like and they can chase us. And then there's others who are opening up a little bit about their business models. And I think having their data science teams meet with data science teams at regulators and obviously with counsel. And that's something which I think is a nice movement because none of us lawyers and economists really understand how this data science actually works. And I think when we move more into neural networking, where you can credibly say to the chief executive of one of these platforms, well, how do you know that you're not self-preferencing your own products or diminishing the, the access to other products? And they may say, well, we never do that. We would never do that. We don't code to do that. But the AI might, because it's a natural thing where the AI is programmed to maximize margins or something. It may very well. the transaction cost may be lower. Yeah. So they may very well credibly say, we don't do any of that. But that's not the point. The point is the company or the AI or the confluence of data and the strategy at hand may result in that kind of activity. And then we have to say, well, okay, what probably technological solutions are you going to put into your business model to stop that happening? You know, because even if you're saying you don't intend that this happens, it still creates some form of harm. And I think that's a really interesting world to play for. I can imagine a range of business models. Maybe people would make millions off this, helping those bigger platforms to comply, not with an extra set of regulatory burden, really, but more just trying to ensure that they have smooth product launches and smooth landings, frankly, rather than getting into this kind of high stakes, almost trade war type talk about we're going to shut off media in this country and we're going to shut this off. But the the cross-border regulatory cooperation is the matching piece of that, isn't it? I mean, while some large companies might be jurisdiction shopping, if you like, for a place where they feel that their business model will work most freely. Equally, the regulators are all talking to each other now and understand the importance of some kind of global coherence in their regulatory policy. Do you think that's realistic? No, I wish it was. I think there's an argument on one hand, which is don't bother us and don't intervene against us until you, the UN or the WTO, all you members have a clear idea about what is anti-competitive use of the platform or not. So let's wait for global standards and rules. I know that's not what you're suggesting, but I would be very sad if any of those arguments were accepted because I did a lot of work on the WTO years ago and it's too slow. It couldn't handle these cases and they're not going to have a global impact at all. So there is, I think, coming together a mainstream sort of view that new theories of harm are needed, more focus on non-price competition, more focus on dynamic effects rather than static effects. But that's about it as far as I can see. What I am seeing though, and what concerns me, is you're seeing some jurisdictions who have no history in this space at all, opening up investigations and statements of objections based on European Commission documents in their country. You know, it's saying, well, okay, we'll apply, you know, copy-paste, FOMO-type antitrust tourists. And fair due to them. But sometimes I've talked to some of these developing country officials and developed country officials and said, oh, well, how that case came to you? And they said, oh, well, we heard about it at the OECD or we heard about it from an ICN meeting. And you think, oh, so there's no complainant. Yeah, interesting. Or there is a complainant. Have you actually looked to see whether what they're telling you is completely tactical? They might have a very competitive market. They might not all be dependent on a gatekeeper. And then that might become fixed in law there. And of course, there's enormous consumer benefits that have been delivered by digital platforms. The fact that you can go and look in your phone and see whether you've missed the train or when Mm -hmm. the next one is, or if there's an alternative bus route or something, all of these things we don't pay for directly. We we might pay through the use of our data or something else, but you know they are still enormous efficiency enhancing things for society, which you wouldn't want to constrain, especially in the developing world. Yeah. 
you were pessimistic about the prospect of getting internationally aligned rules. Yes. But we are seeing the framework emerge. You know, gatekeepers in the EU, strategic market status in the UK, this idea of a designated platform in Australia. They're all convening around the same idea that if you are someone with the keys, then you will have special rules applied to you. And that seems to me to be perhaps a trend that we might see spread around the world. Would you think so? I think the alignment is recognizing that these kinds of platforms come with a great range of benefits, but network effects and other issues that relate to exclusionary or exploitative activity once you're on the platform. A lot of these resonate with antitrust cases in the past, but we're trying to get ahead of that by saying under these conditions, we expect problems to arise. Therefore, we're going to make this conduct prohibited unless they can have a good justification or in the EU prohibited with no efficiency justification. You know, no defence. The content of the codes and how they're created is an interesting question as well. I think there have been some consultations in the UK recently, haven't there? Is there anything that Australia can learn from that? Put all of your gems in the annexes. And the reason why I say that is that the CMA has done two or three big studies, you know, of online ads and mobile ecosystems. And in the annexes for these swassy people like me, you'll see, say, Appendix T or Annex D or whatever, that is essentially almost a rule book for the industry. That's not a legally binding document. That doesn't constrain the authority, but it says these are the kind of issues we're concerned about. And I think that's a real reaching out by government that they should be able to do that and also be brave enough to say, and in these kind of circumstances, we don't believe there's a problem. That's gold dust to industry. The content of the codes will come under healthy discussion in Australia, I'm sure. And it's evident that things like self-preferencing is looking at vertical issues. And, you know, there's a lot of history to vertical integration issues and separation, structural separation kind of arguments in Australia. But there are also horizontal interoperability type issues. And I think you've got some views about how beneficial that was in the banking industry. Tell us about that. Interoperability stimulates competition. And my argument for this is it's the least intrusive regulatory measure that I think we can think up that results in the best opportunity for new competitors to enter a market using data held by the incumbent. So if the argument is that the incumbent has huge data advantages and the entrants just need access to the data, if there is some form of aggregated anonymized data that they could get access to through some sort of sandbox, which keeps it protected, then they might be able to devise new products and that might unnecessarily eat the lunch of the platform. It just might wake up the platform a bit to do something with its own data. And that's what we saw in open banking. They were clamoring these fintechs around saying, look at all this stuff, money you're leaving on the table or you're just giving your shareholders or whatever. If we could have a tiny touch of that data, we could invent this, this and this. And so what we tried in the UK when we had decided there was an adverse effect on competition from the structure of the market was these open banking remedies. And what we wanted to see was not the big bank's share go down necessarily, though that would be a natural consequence of competition. But we wanted consumers first to be able to engage better with their bank through the use of this data. For example, the big banks never found out a profitable way to serve single mums on low incomes. So they just ignored them, which meant the single moms on low incomes, to a significant percentage, ended up taking payday loans and other things, which are really noxious sort of products. And instead, fintechs came into the UK after open banking and said, actually, we don't have the huge capital costs of a bank. We can easily serve those vulnerable consumers with a particular product that would help them. And we've seen some of that. Is it a revolution? No. You know, did it break up the banks? No, we didn't want it to. We just wanted to give them an opportunity. And the bad joke I will make now is that our evidence clearly showed that British people aren't going to switch banks. They switch their spouses more frequently than they switch their banks. So what we want is we don't want you to switch your bank. 
we want you to have an affair with another bank for your mortgage. <laughs> Go on and reach over there for a little bit of their uh, saving account. So they actually, you know, Barclays and HSBC, well, we're sitting on all the data. Why aren't we serving single mums with fantastic loans? And so that's what I liked. It sort of unleashed or unlocked a little bit of the digital competition. I've got to say, you're sounding a little bit hipster as well yeah. when you, t- when you uh, talk about single mums and their banking. Yeah, but there are important human issues behind a lot of this stuff. And so I often chuckle when people say, oh, competition law can't solve everything. We're not saying it should. This is a different kind of ex ante regulation that's focused on power of gatekeeper and large systemic firms, which have various benefits and some harms. And some of those harms are non-competition harms. You know, some of those harms are definitely related to online harms or privacy. But nevertheless, the designation of the gatekeeper allows us to add some obligations onto them. And I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing a regulator saying, well, we'll add that little bullet point onto this particular platform as well, because we've got huge privacy concerns with them. That sort of thing. Regulatory creep is definitely going to happen. Philip, you've talked about the need for codes to be flexible and adaptable. You know, ex-ante regulation is not set in stone, clearly, and it has to adjust to what's going on. How do you measure the success of it, whether they're being adaptable in the right way, whether they've gone down the wrong path and need to be trimmed or corrected? How do we measure the success of ex-ante regulation? Mm -hmm. And then how do we go about adapting it if we think it's going in the wrong direction? The main sign of success for me is if we start seeing, rather than complaints about Google or complaints about Amazon from traders, we start seeing people saying, I use Google and it helped me so much because of the interoperability requirement in the digital market or something like that. They're not going to use those words, but you know what I mean? That they, do people they report to... those things though? I don't know if they do, but I'm sure that, and I've seen this in the past as well, that a lot of these companies under investigation will regularly trot out stories like that as they should. But I think that you want to see a degree more economic diversity than we're already seeing. And that's hard because when you look at what's on the internet right now or on our phones, it's just too much. You couldn't say there's not enough choice, but the choice is curated. Do I know whether what I'm seeing is really for me or is it really objective? Is it tailored? I just feel that we should err on the side of more economic diversity, but it's more almost an existential sort of question. Do you want more diversity? Think about from an environmental point of view, to make another metaphor, the world is rich, full of fantastic products and blossoms and vines and apex predators and etc. Now it seems to be turning a little bit towards a world of three grain companies. And that's very efficient to have three grain companies and destroying the rainforest. And let's just pave over everything and let's just plant things that make palm oil or whatever. Very efficient, not very nutritious, not very good for the environment, not very diverse, but efficient. And we're thinking along those lines of, do we really want three, three or four companies to give us everything we want as efficiently as possible? Do we want a little bit of grit, a little bit of difference? And I don't think it's true that people can just walk away. We're addicted to these screens. We can't just walk away. And so you end up conforming to something that only focuses on efficiency and the promotion of ads and the promotion of engagement, as opposed to you know, a plural news source or you know, more plurality. And so, yeah, to be honest, I don't have a strict quantitative measure for success, but that sense of more choice, the sense that I can do more on my own rather than just taking risk given to me is something that I hope will catch on a bit more. And I think the introduction of a consumer data right in some countries can only help that. It is sounding a little bit hipster to put our faith in plurality, but... I appreciate it. The last points I was just making on a high rhetorical level, but it's got to be true, right? And yes, people can be blinded by choice, but I just hope that it'll engage regular users and consumers and businesses with saying there might be another option. One last question. Is it true that you are a runner 
I'm not just a runner. I'm one of these poor souls who does endurance runs. Yeah, it's ultra runner. Like 100 miles or something? 100 miles, yeah, and 100K and mountain races and these kinds of things. I used to be a marathon runner, but I got so slow. But it was um, too short. It was like, no, this <laughs> yes, is not long enough. Answer. This is done in like three hours. Yeah, I much prefer the longer distances, which is really just eating contests. So you just, can you eat for 20 hours straight while moving forward slowly in a straight line? Yes, I can. <laughs> but one of the things I like, and I have a little hashtag called antitrust tourism. I love nothing more when I arrive in your jurisdiction to go for a run with the local person. For a hundred um, miles or so. Maybe not as much as that, but it just grounds you and you get to see, for example, retail offerings on the ground, little coffee shop, little thing like this, having a look at things around the world, not just staring at your screen and taking everything from that, as efficient as it is. Well, be warned, listeners, if Philip Marsden turns up in your city, you'll be looking for somebody to run 100 miles with him. at least. So, you know, you might like to keep a low profile (laughs) when that's happening. But also, if you're a small business or uh, whatever, if you see some guy jogging past, Mm -hmm. you know. Give me a free Cortado. (laughs) I'm fine with that. (laughs) Well, you know, I've been trying to raise the credibility of this podcast by having people who are like measured, sensible, not at all crazy. So uh, maybe we should just leave it there. Yeah, I think we should just leave it there. Thanks so much for giving your time to us today, Philip. It's been fascinating talking to you about developments in the EU and in the UK and reflecting upon how that might apply in Australia. Thank you. What a great interview. Uh, I think the phrase antitrust hipster might be just about over by now. It's all progressive antitrust. It's all getting pretty normal. But I like the idea of an antitrust flaneur who wanders around all over the place, checking out the competition on the margins. I think that might catch on. Did he perform an antitrust rap for us, Moya? Actually, he did. Take it away. Is this all hipster? Are we human or are we dancer? The killers ask that and I answer. It's all based on some exploitation of basic human needs and traits. Everyone's so excited about regulating markets multi-sided. But what does it mean? What do we know? Do we know what to do? What harm do we show? Google Glasses, they broke, so they moved on to Pokemon Go to do A-B testing on children for crying out loud. Don't bless them. And now we see Google buying into wearables. Hell, it's unbearable. Taking out Fitbit. Totally toxic. Let's kill it. And don't you be harming anyone else. So yes, stay away from my Garmin. And Mark Zuck, all our data he'll suck in pursuit of connection, but really the almighty buck. We need intervention. It's happened before and it levels the floor, opens the door. AT&T, Antitrustin, opened up markets for IBM. We saw the same again. Microsoft orders allowed for more than Internet Explorer. Chrome soon found a home, and now there's Android threatening a void. Interoperability holds the keys, creates space for intermediaries and their offers to thrive. I can only assume you've already asked ChatGPT to write a rap about antitrust. How could I not? And it goes. (laughs) Here we go. Antitrust, competition law, we gotta fight. Big corporations monopolizing, it ain't right. Gotta keep the market free and fair, that's our goal. Gonna bust the trust, bring justice to the fold. So, uh, Dr. Marsden doesn't need to worry yet either. No, he only has to worry about <laughs> finding rhymes for Bundeskartelamt. But we'll see if Claude can do any better. In the meantime, what's going on in your crystal ball? So, on the 7th of March, Chair Gina Cascott-Lieb is going to deliver the ACCC's Enforcement and Compliance Priorities for 2023-24 at CEDA in Sydney, supported by Gilbert and Tobin, as usual. I didn't know the crystal ball had ads now. It has some sponsored content. These are the first enforcement priorities under the new chair, and we're looking forward to seeing what her approach is and whether there'll be much of a shift. 
Well, so far, you wouldn't say there's been a revolution at the ACCC, but I don't think anyone really expected one. No, the changes will be more incremental, I expect, Mm. and we might not even recognise them until sometime after they've happened. But the group is putting together a roundup of the last year in competition and consumer law, and that'll be available at the event and online afterwards. Wait, are you interrupting the sponsored content with some more sponsored content? This is promoted content. (laughs) We're also trying to sneak a new competition law cryptic crossword into the update. And if we can pull that one off, then one of the answers will be Daniel Young from Houston Kemp, who was the first person to solve the last crossword. Well done, Daniel. Well, we're back. Remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests to come this year, including GNT partner Simon Merce with more on recent developments in Europe and our special panel on unfair training practices with ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Lieb. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Chat GPT, the king of AI. My rhymes so sick, they'll make you high. I'm always on the beat, never miss a step. Just ask me anything, I'll give you the best.